Sego, welcome to Stolen Health, Episode 6 of our Stolen series. In Season 3 of Sacred Teachings, we talked about racism in Canada. Recently, Joyce Eshugan, an Indigenous mother of seven from Quebec, recorded the racist taunts of her nurses as she lay dying in hospital. For many of our people, the horrific experience of this young mother is nothing new. In this episode, guest host Peter Downey will explore how racism and a brutal history of colonialism has had a deep and lasting impact on the health of Indigenous people. Thanks, Jenny. Racism is the dominant reason explaining the difference in health outcomes between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in Canada. Plain, simple, and ugly and certainly not what any country wants to hear about itself. But you know what? It's time to listen. It's time to listen to an elder who feels like turning the tables. Canada's Canadian population sits there and thinks thinks it's an Indian problem, and it's easier that way than really it's a Canadian problem. That's Elder Rick Lightning from Alberta. It's time to listen to an Indigenous health professional on the front lines of what is lamentably an ongoing battle. You are guests on our land. And until we come to a a relationship of equity, the true uh, distribution of resources, wealth, and the elimination of violence, we will always be unequal. That's the language of an impassioned activist in the person of Dr. Barry Lavallee in Winnipeg. We'll talk with him further in a few moments. But for now, it's time to listen to the more restrained but welcome language of the politician. Le service public québécois a failli à son devoir envers Madame et chacun. Je veux, au nom de l'État québécois, offrir mes excuses à la famille, aux proches et à la communauté de Joyce et chacun. That's Quebec Premier François Legault saying that the public health service in Quebec failed in its duty to Joyce Eshagon, and that the state offers its apologies to her and extends its condolences to her family. If only Elder Rick Lightning had been able to ask a question. Why is that okay for a French nurse to do that? Why was she not charged for murder instead of being just fired? So that gives us, I think, at least a sense of the emotional landscape of this episode. Let's dig a little bit deeper now. The brutal humiliation of Joyce Eshagon is only shocking to those who don't live with this kind of hateful treatment on a daily basis. For Elder Rick Lightning, it's all too familiar. You know, he's the quintessential survivor, from residential schools to the suicide of a daughter, to his work on the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, and his efforts with the UN's Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Rick has seen more than his fair share of hope and despair in his 67 years. He's now proudly the first elder in residence at the University of Alberta's Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry. I think historically when you look at the healthcare system, 
And when we go back and we go back to residential schools, we go pre-residential schools, we had industrial schools. And even then the industrial schools that were placed in the 1800s, my grandfather went to the industrial school and they, uh, and children died in there. They had to finally shut it down because so many children died in there. And so, and so when we go into the residential schools, again, the medical uh, people that are responsible for uh, giving medical help to children, it was, it was under federal. So we, for instance, my first, when I first got my teeth pulled, when I first dentist was a pliers dipped in solution and pulled out of, and then my teeth pulled out as a child. And so when we, and so everything that was done in residential school wasn't up to par for what we needed. In fact, right now there is a lawsuit against Indian hospitals in Alberta. And then out of five of them, I went to three of them. When was, I was born in Morley, Alberta, in the Indian hospital there, and I had major complications where I nearly died. And then I was in, in the Hubima Indian Hospital, and then also, also in the Charles Council Indian Hospital. The Charles Council Indian Hospital was created. We weren't, we weren't really welcome to the outside hospitals. And so the Indian Hospital was created for the northern people as well to come they had a place to go to and we all so that's why the Charles Council Hospital was created for Indians to go to and uh, and we talk about uh, racism health has all been a racism it's been always part of part of the health present uh, provider and so we always have to depend on these people in the last five years, we were finally able to have, we've actually had some Indian doctors like Blackfoot doctors and some Cree doctors, which made it through. And it wasn't easy for them to make it through that process to become actual doctors. Because at one time, it was, a, if you became a doctor or if you became a teacher or anything with education, Indian Affairs took your rights away because you were too smart to be an Indian. And so that that shows you the historical thinking of why I'm going back to the legislation is that the it goes back into government and all the way back into the all the way to Sir John A. Macdonald saying kill the Indian and save the child. Well, that thinking is still there. It's like if you're too smart to be an Indian, then you take from the veterans came back from the war. They took their status away. That was a reward. We're going to make you like us. And then going, and so they lost. But yet, on the other hand, the non-Indians that came back from war got land. They call it soldiers' land, and they got land. The Indians got nothing. They got, in fact, they got left into destitute because they had no status again. So, when we talk about historical how things were done, it, it's really interesting. So, how does that fit? I work at the U, I work with U of A as a in-house elder with faculty of medicine and dentistry. That's the first time they've actually had someone, anyone actually, universities actually have, I'm not periodically popping in. I actually have an office there and I work there. I work out of my home as a service provider. I sit on a, on a committee for anti-racism for, anti for the university at the high level, which is great because they've never had an Indian there. We need to have more involvement of, my, of our elders and there's a lot of elders out there that, are, that have the capability and the capacity to sit on at high levels of 
government jobs. But the problem is, are these are these positions going to be just uh, um, just a seat filler? Or are they actually going to really listen to the people and talk to them about change? Like we talk about change, but is it really going to happen? And so we those are the kind of the question the kind of questions we need to ask. And the thing is, a lot of a lot of our people across Canada are intelligent people with degrees and whatsoever. So they're able to have that conversation and talk about that uncomfortable question because that uncomfortable question has never been asked because nobody wants to ask it because the, because the answer is just as uncomfortable. What's the question? Is Canada racist all the way up to the prime minister? When you look at these things, when then you look at what happened with the TRC, when they wanted to know the numbers of the missing children that were mur- that died or murdered in, in residential schools, we they had to go to Supreme Court to get the to get the names. They didn't give it to them. They had to actually fight for the names so that parents could go to have rest. So the interesting part is Canada always says, "Why can't they just get over it?" Well, it's easy to say that, but the thing is, they don't realize how it, this is not like two hundred years ago. This is all within. I'm 67. It's it's in my lifetime. My father's lifetime. My grandfather lost his brother in in the industrial school. He seen him thrown in a in a mass grave. And that and when he told me he was 70, and he told me what happened, and you could still hear the anger, and and the hurt in his voice at 70 years old for his brother. So if you can imagine about how families that lost their children in residential school what did it do to the families themselves like what did it do to grandparents unfortunately what happened with these children that died in residential schools there is no memories the memories died and so when you talk about stolen what happened is the stolen memories are taken from the grandparents with the interaction with their grandchildren their grand and the interaction with their children so it goes even deeper when you talk about psychological damage that was done not only to the child, but to the parents as well as the grandparents and the great-grandparents as well. It goes all the way up. That trauma has health implications, doesn't it? Well, when you look at across the board, diabetes is the new, I call, I, it's a harsh word to say, but I call it the new leprosy within our communities. Because we're losing our sight, we're losing our legs, we're losing uh, parts of our body. And so... The, and the people go, well, why is that happening? It's not only is it because of food intake, but also it's because of trauma passed into generation trauma that's handed down through, through within our psyche. And it's been a proven fact that in our DNA that memories go through our DNA. And, and so the memories of our past and whether, unfortunately, it's not good memories, it's historical trauma that's been passed on through. So a lot of times, are, are, I believe a lot of the cancers, the other one, we have a high cancer rate. And when you look at the Canadian population, is that we, we are, uh, we, all of us are, living, are, are basically living ticking bombs of some kind of uh, 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 crisis within the healthcare system. I have to say those uh, children sound pretty healthy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those are my grandkids. And they're, they're, they're too damn high. They're up at <laughs> 7 in the morning. They're visiting. And so... Since the pandemic happened, it's we've had in, Mar- in March, everyone moved home because they didn't have jobs. So we had 11 of us living in my house. And so you really, it, it, your whole, everything changes. But 
but it's a good change. I'm, I'm in, we're, we're creating memories with our grandkids. I, I was at the AW going, I told my wife, I'm going to go to AW, get pancakes for the grandkids, and we're going to have a, don't cook nothing and have your day, it's your morning off. I was at, I was actually at the AW ordering pancakes, and this guy behind me starts swearing at me and telling me, hurry up, why don't you just cook at home, you dad, effing Indian, and he's swearing away at me. And I turn around and says, wait till I get past this damn speaker box, then I'll talk to you. And finally, when I got past the speaker box, he drove away. He raced away, swearing at me. And he's driving down the street yelling, you Indians, stay on Indian land. This is white land. You guys don't belong on white land, he's yelling at us. When you, when you have um, historic trauma in your life and you don't address it, eventually it leads to a chronic sickness of some kind. And, a lot of, and there is no services to address this historic trauma. And in, in historical trauma goes all the way to 1960, 1980, 1990. So it's not, we always talk about historical trauma, but we always think, we're thinking 1800s, early 90s, but we actually, we're, we're, we're right up to, the, to, to 1990 and 1980 and so on. So historical trauma, is, it's, 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 it's in our immediate past. It's not way back there like we always think historical trauma is. So it's, the definition has to be changed as to what it is. Well, I mean, even in 2020, the trauma continues. That terrible case of Joyce Echegon in Joliet, Quebec, who was humiliated and belittled even as she lay dying, that exposes a, a cruelty and an ignorance that is still present. And I wonder how you respond as an elder when, when you see such shocking stories like this. What makes me think is what is the rest of Canada thinking? I, I'm I, obviously I, 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 my feelings are obvious, but my thinking is what about the rest of Canada, who are supposed to be, uh, who, like we talk, it's promoted as we're all Canadian and well, this is a Canadian issue. It's not an Indian issue. And I think we need to really, and the rest of Canada needs to really seriously think about that. Look what's going on right now in New Brunswick. Why is it okay for them to do that to the Indians? Why is that okay for a, a French nurse to do that? Why was she not charged for murder instead of being just fired? We still have that thinking outside that it's okay to kill an Indian because you'll get away with it. It's okay to murder a woman and you'll get away with it because it's been going on for since the beginning of time, Canada's Canadian population sits there and thinks it thinks it's an Indian problem, and it's easier that way than and really it's a Canadian problem. But we need more people in Canada saying this is wrong. We need people in Nova Scotia saying this is wrong. This these people don't represent us. We can say it; it's obvious, but it doesn't mean nothing unless the rest of Canada says it. Rick, what keeps what what keeps you going? Where does the resilience come from? Oh, that's a good question. My my grandchildren, my great grandchildren, I, I I really, and you know, we we gotta have hope. I think in the beginning, when the, I learned about hope from the Declaration, when I first started working in the United Nations. I it was difficult. We spent millions of dollars of our own money for that Declaration. And, 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 we, and the declaration was finally passed. 
but in with the historic behind the scenes, there was a lot of people that were hired to try to stop this declaration. The declaration is so important. It's it, it's a law that that supports and protects all indigenous people across, around the world. So that's you can't you can't fight that. Well, you can fight it, but we have that to protect us. Everyone should read that. Have be have a good read about it and look at it and see and see what. It gives you a better understanding why what rights are being uh, are not being followed or like for instance with Nova Scotia with Quebec and the, and the list goes on across the provinces. We have we have the prime minister saying I'm sorry, but we we've heard I'm sorry for for decades, but there's never been anything that's tangible for us to work with. So here's here's my final kind of issue about this is that. As you describe that that declaration in such powerful terms, it doesn't stop that guy from calling you an effing Indian when you're trying to get pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, here's the interesting if I would have got a what would have happened if I wasn't at the speaker box while he was calling me an effing Indian? So I go over there and beat the hell out of him. Who's the bad guy? That's what we live with. I go to jail. And the RCP will not listen to my side of the story. And, and, and the thing is, when you really get down to it, he's having a bad day. So we've seen an Indian. And I'll just swear at him. And so Canada's having a bad day. So they decide to let's just swear at the Indians. <laughs> We're the bad guys all the time. We've been the bad guys since day one. Why, why can't these Indians go away? How do you have trust? If I come up, if you didn't know me and I walked over there and knocked you over and then later come back, say, I want to be your friend. Would you do, how would you be with that? <laughs> so that's where we're at today. When you think of your grandkids, uh, what, what's your greatest hope for them as they grow up? My hope for my grandkids and my great, and my great grandkids is that they'd be able to have a have healthy, lives but one of them the most thing i really would like to see them to grow up without fear of not being able to go anywhere publicly and not be condemned or or have racial slurs said at them by strangers and and that they be able to go to school go to post-secondary education have jobs and that they have that they feel safe in this country that promotes safety in this, but yet for indigenous people it's not safe and and that's my greatest hope for my grandchildren and my great grandchildren that they grow up without fear and then that's something I really I thought about and I, it's something I, I hold dear to my heart when we talk about fear historically we've had fear embedded in our psyche from residential school by 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 Christianity by RCMP by government and it's still today 2020 we still fear we all have fear whenever we leave the reserve to go into the various communities and cities so that's my greatest hope for my grandchildren and great-grandchildren it's been a real pleasure to to speak with you Rick thank you so much for sharing uh sharing your stories with us no problem come visit That's Elder Rick Lightning speaking from his home in Alberta. It's no accident that he ended by saying, come visit. In words that are as heartbreaking as they are direct, he has said that the door is open. 
We need people to know that we're human. Listening to him and the struggles he's been working on for decades reminds me a bit of what Albert Schweitzer said when he was asked why he would voluntarily give up the comforts of Europe for the unknowns of the African continent. He said simply, my life is my argument. That conviction also applies to Dr. Barry Lavallee. He's a member of Manitoba First Nation and Métis communities and is a family physician specializing in Indigenous health and Northern practice. One of the things when you look at Joyce Achuquan versus Black Lives Matter movement and you look at the phenomena uh, that occurred after that uh, gentleman was murdered by the police um, and actually world uh, consequences to that in terms of disrupting uh, you know, the current power systems across the many lands. And then you look at uh, what happened to Joyce Achuquan and it was videotaped, um, it was prolonged, it was vulgar, it was vile, um, but deep within that nest of murder that we witnessed is really uh, a, a what Canada has to struggle with uh, as a country. The founding, the, the founding elements of the relationship between Canada and the original peoples to these lands who were here and had established systems, societies, sciences, etc., uh, is the need for Canada to continually provoke genocide, provoke displacement, and the continual stealing of our lands. One of the things, Peter, that's really quite fundamental to understanding, you know, the Canadian context of how Indigenous peoples are oppressed within Canada is that the Indigenous body is the proxy to the land, and it's continual renewal to be conquered, conquested, and to be the defiled in many ways. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, medicine, health, uh, nursing, and all of our professions uh, in which we make claims as we pass through that profession to become a, a provider of health and, and caring and compassion is our commitment to do no harm. Our commitment to want to learn about how our own biases actually might not provide care, might provide uh, negligent care uh, for people who are racialized, poor, homosexual, different than what the uh, visualized uh, uh, non-reality of what ca Canadians see themselves. And that's predominantly white, heterosexual, um, and, and living off of privilege. That's really uh, the opposite side of the coin uh, to oppression for Indigenous peoples in Canada. So part of my study as I move forward as a healthcare provider and a leader in healthcare for Indigenous peoples, is to examine that relationship and how it manifests in the healthcare system and its delivery uh, of care to First Nations people, and particularly in Manitoba. Is that racism at the heart of the gap between health outcomes for Indigenous people and non the difference, like the shocking difference in those outcomes? Is racism... You know, I'm not asking you to pick one thing, but is racism near or at the top of that list? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been saying recently in public, and people might not uh, appreciate that, um, but our threat right now, as indeed is COVID virus, uh, given the underlying inequities uh, that uh, First Nations or Indigenous people live with today. So when you sprinkle the virus on top of that, then it amplifies a lot of the struggles we've had for 
decades, okay? But in reality, when you're looking at absolute numbers right now in the pandemic, uh, and this is where people might not agree with me, the most, the chronic pandemic that we have is called racism. It's been there for 150 years, 200 years, its roots are 300 years ago, okay? Uh, in the settler formation on, the, on these lands. And that's why I'm pushing this because racism will still be there post COVID if we don't deal with it. So here are the opportunities for Canada, for citizens, for our First Nations and other Indigenous organizations to push for change, to disrupt the systems that actually brought us to a point where our health outcomes differ, not because of a genetic variant of human beings, but we've been racialized and that itself is a social construct embedded within policies and actions from those policies across Canada. I was really intrigued by, um, and I'm not gonna do it justice and I hope you can expand on this a little bit more, but your idea that, and I think this was your language, the symbol of the diseased, defenseless, dying Indian is critical to settler mentality to continue the system of oppression. Yes, yes, you said it very well. Thank you, Peter. So you have to remember that in, say, 1880, uh, we had lots of uh, people coming from the predominantly Western uh, European society, so English and French, you know, uh, etc. When these people came over here, they already had some idea and notion what was this thing called Canada, what was its involvement, that there was free land for people who just work it. Um, but when they came to the lands, according to one author, um, uh, they saw indeed uh, Indigenous peoples uh, standing by forts uh, for trade who looked listless, no energy, kind of drooping shoulders. That was a consequence of 80 years of TB, smallpox, being displaced from our own lands and being removed from the economy that had been established vis-a-vis uh, -vis the fur trading economy that almost starved out my ancestors. Um, and so when people come and they use their initial imagery, real-time imagery to say what is an Indian, inside there is buried this concept that we uh, as, a, as a race of people um, are cannot meet modernity. We can't meet the new world. And so therefore we're seen as dragging and struggling along. And the only thing sometimes uh, police, uh, child and family services, uh, healthcare systems, educational systems could do is try desperately to palliate us. It means to pretend that we're human, but you know we're dying, to be good to us. And, and grossly, uh, as I watched that video for of Joyce Achiquan being tortured as she died, it reminded me of the reenactment of the concept of the dead and dying Indian in Canada. And the only thing we could do is palliate you and give you morphine to let you go. Okay, these are very profound and deep realizations that have been written about by many authors, including Shireen Razak, who's an expert that I work with out of uh, Los Angeles. You know, the Canadian. Uh, would be shocked by what I said. But in fact, our, our blindness to continue to promote this genocide, uh, we are complicit because we don't ask the questions about why. So a young woman of 37 died 
seven babies, a husband who loved her and a family who loved her, and yet we have never reacted. Indeed, Minister Mark Miller uh, did react. I was quite pleasantly surprised at his initial words. Um, they're calling for a federal uh, committee to address racism against Indigenous people as a start. Uh, we're doing some work in Manitoba here now that we have more resources and leader in First Nations uh, leadership to address these issues. You know, what occurred to me was that, um, in a sense, John A. Macdonald is a very useful figure for settler history in, the, in terms of it's easier to blame the past than it is to confront the present. And yes. I think that's the real nub here, isn't it? It's, it's acknowledging this isn't 100 years old. This is today in Canada. Absolutely. It, racism against uh, targeting Indigenous people is a necessary function of Canada. People don't realize that. Because in fact, one of my theories um, is that if we have the last Indian or First Nations person or Indigenous person in Canada, and he or she expires, at that moment, Canada no longer exists. Canada as a state no longer exists. What you have remaining are fiefdoms, German, uh, Botswanian, uh, South African, Cantonese, so that the creation of Canada as a settler state is wholly dependent upon um, the reenactment of the stealing of the land. And the corollary to that is a missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, high rates of incarceration, both in job family services, prison systems in that complex, as well as the, the normalized violence demonstrated against Indigenous people by policing repeatedly in Manitoba here. We have three young Indigenous people who were murdered by police. As leaders, we don't have time to react because we're really busy with the COVID, trying to ensure our communities have resources and access to the best that Manitoba can provide uh, should we have uh, uh, epidemics occurring in our communities. So there's lots going on. And for, from our perspective, what we see uh, today uh, around this COVID, it fully amplifies and expresses the things that we've been dealing with, but it compounds it more. We now have to actually advocate for ourselves with a system that's supposed to come from equity, but it isn't. The concept that I think might be a bit difficult for non-Indigenous people to, to grasp and to, and to, it's easy to say, but to truly understand is that Indigenous health is tied to the land in a way that non-Indigenous people have never faced. I mean, it, it, it's not part of their, I don't know, their DNA or their history that connection with the land. Can, can you talk a bit about that? What the loss of that land, the stealing of that land has meant in, in health terms for Indigenous people? Well, you know, I mean, one of the things, let me just, uh, uh, let me just say something about the settler phenomena. Uh, and Albert Mammy is an expert colonized and colonizer to understand the psychology of what colonization is about, who are the actors and players and how do they manifest in their relationships. But if you leave Europe, your ancestors left Europe for a reason, whatever that might be, but you come to a new land, quote unquote, with all the elevated opportunities that every settler gets. So you're not here because of the land. And I'm not saying that there are landowners who don't love their land. And I'm not saying there aren't producers who actually feel a need to feed the, feed the world through productions, whatever. Um, I'm saying that um, 
our historical relationship to these lands is 10,000 plus years. So it's as if 5,000 Indigenous men and I got off on a boat on Europe and England, created a 10-foot wall in central uh, London and ensured that people only speak Cree to us and that our servants who are English people start learning Cree and will bring their children into Cree classes to be able to reform them, to liken as we are. So, you know, people have to accept that history. The land, all of this land is treaty land. Some of it's not because it was never negotiated. It still is indigenous land from coast to coast to north to south. People have a very hard time understanding that. You are guests on our land. And until we come to a, a relationship of equity, the true uh, distribution of resources, wealth, and the elimination of violence, we will always be unequal. And the consequences to that unequal relationship are Indigenous people being put into spaces where they will remain sick or become sick. So just quickly, I want to tell you that some research we did looking at chronic kidney disease, uh, which is a very, very uh, important phenomenon for us here in Manitoba, as Northern Manitoba is shown to have the highest rate of need of dialysis machines. So that's not a, a complete fact, but what it says is that uh, we're not catching community people early enough to give them medications and ways to keep their kidneys healthy. This is very important because it, being on dialysis is a great struggle for people. My heart goes out to them. Our evidence suggests that an indigenous baby at the moment of conception, one cell, human. And at two cells, we already believe they have chronic kidney disease. So before they even form their organs, before they look like a human, before they leave their mom, they already have chronic kidney disease. That's the only logical phenomena that would help us answer why chronic kidney disease is so rampant in our communities relative to other racial groups across North America. And that's published material. It impacts the conception of that child. That's the only logical reason. So when you talk about intergenerational phenomena, like residential schools, child services, starvation diet, uh, starvation experiments in the 50s and 40s uh, in Manitoba by scientists, um, and as well as displacement from land as colonization uh, grew uh, in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, etc. here in Manitoba, as well as in the West, um, that, that those consequences we see today, 2020, in the prevalence of certain diseases. My area of interest is chronic diseases like diabetes, chronic disease, hypertension, et cetera. So now, now we have a way to use Western bioscience to actually amplify our understanding of what's happening. What's happening to the growing child is not so much more important as getting rid of the consequences of that. I mean, the... the um, facilitators of that. And that really is around equity. And that's around elimination of racism yeah. so that Indigenous people seeking care can get care without having, being threatened by providers. That all in itself, that is how oppression uh, looks. And those are some of the organic details of, of how oppression appears. And indeed, Peter, there are people who are going to think, well, my mom is white. She was treated poorly. My grandma. Indeed, it's an imperfect system, the healthcare system. But we have enough evidence to say 
that there is a targeting of indigenous people with uh, the studies that we've done. Okay, so I just want to say that in the podcast right now. That must present to you as a physician a tremendous challenge. You're not just treating what's in front of you. I mean, you're dealing, as you say, with hundreds of years of, I mean, how do you even approach that? Well, you know, one of the things, I mean, I, I don't have all the answers. I've been doing this for like 30 years. Uh, I went into medicine because my ancestors uh, guided me here. Um, and I went and I stayed in medicine with the focus on my own community people uh, because the elders and the nurses uh, who helped train me uh, turned my face towards my head towards that journey. Um, I don't have all the answers, Peter. But what I do know is I want an overhauling of the relationship between Canada and First Nations people, and I want action to eliminate racism, meaning that I want consequences uh, to people in healthcare systems, uh, should it be um, uh, observed that they're participating in racist acts. That requires education, Peter, because work at the Sanyas Cultural Safety Training Program at the BC Ministry of Health, I worked with a scholar there to examine stereotyping, specific Indigenous stereotyping, in a teaching session that people participated in. And it was there that we realized that the use of stereotypes is what racism looks like. So when you look at Joyce Atchequan and the slurs and the, the evil words that were thrown to her as she lay dying thinking about her babies are what racism looks like. So people believe, Peter, this is a real important thing, People believe that stereotypes are normal, that we can say, as an example, women don't reach the highest levels of, of jobs because they want to have babies. That's a stereotype. That's only to maintain white heteropatriarchy in places of power and to diminish women. And the same is said, can be said for the numerous, numerous uh, stereotypes about Indigenous people who enter a healthcare system. And the first one is alcoholism drug-seeking, uh, bad mother, bad father, uh, violent, um, you know, uneducated, uh, poor development of brain. You know, all of these things manifest and maintain the status quo uh, in Canada and including who gets access to the better parts of healthcare. Okay, th this is really important. So part of my work at the medical school at the Rowdy Faculty of Health Sciences uh, that I, I'm not, no longer there, uh, was really to address and utilize that kind of uh, teaching moment in self-reflective ways for uh, aspiring doctors. And I guarantee you, Peter, uh, the use of those stereotypes is quite predominant in a, in a class of, of, of future leaders in Canada who you, um, Lisa, myself, we will depend upon these people when we need them, okay? Um, but you got to remember, they're no different than other settlers. They just have had an opportunity to get a degree and apply it to medicine. Now that's not all, Peter. I'm not throwing my my uh, you know my colleagues under the bus. I'm saying it does exist, and I'm not going to play nice uh, and say that we're all beautiful. We're all have good hearts. Um, we are, uh, you know. I come from a settler uh, line as well, from you know 16 or 1700s. Um, but we are all complicit. Um, unless we actually change our behaviors and are held accountable to each other and the words we say. Because a word like saying um, you're only good for sex 
while it appears when you string those kind of words together, uh, a person should have the ability to flick it off. But in the moment when you're fighting for your life, I just cannot imagine how her soul was damaged uh, at that moment. So Peter, the racism is violent. It is vile. I know that one of your areas of interest is transgenerational trauma. And I'm, I'm really curious about how that trauma is passed down from generation to generation and, and the health implications of yes. kind of knowing, feeling that trauma. What do we know about that now? So that we believe that, um, you know, transgenerational trauma and how it's carried for probably has a genetic component, not based on race, but based on environment and how that gene is expressed. Imagine it that way. And that's, that's neither here nor there, but it does have some important implications. But if we were to remove, theoretically, Peter, let's say tomorrow we can make this world in Canada fully equitable. Let's, let's not argue with that. Let's just say, okay. And if we all had equal opportunities and opportunities plus for communities who've had several generations of oppression and we can achieve health possibility, et cetera, it'll still take seven generations to eliminate uh, the consequences of transgenerational trauma within our bodies. Okay, because each generation uh, develops genes without the environmental damage impacting it. That's one thing to think about. But if we don't deal with the ongoing consequences of colonization, we reaffirm that trauma from one generation to the next. I know there have been some theorists out there who are wanting to understand how a mother transmits that to her child, a father you know, to his grandson or whatever, okay, grandpa to grandson. It's not so much a reliance on our verbal uh, behavior that transmits that. Importantly, it is the environment of toxicity for Indigenous people that continue to maintain that, um, that uh, oppression, intergenerational trauma. So we know that uh, the idea of intergenerational trauma came from the Sioux communities uh, when they looked at the massacres three and earlier years was three generations ago, and they realized that the behaviors of, of their community people were a consequence of the mass murders that had occurred uh, by the American uh, government in the last frontier, right? Um, and so that evolution has come through. And now with our work around chronic kidney disease, we can see minute evidence that this transgenerational trauma impacts not only um, us and how we behave, but the development of our organs. This is a very serious, Peter, extremely serious. Yeah. And so part of our work then is not so much to, uh, you know, rely on quit smoking, although one shouldn't smoke, uh, walk, you know, eat tofu, um, all those kinds of things, but rather it's trying to do things now so that there's an impact 20 years. I probably won't be here 20 years, but we have to make changes now and that really is the elimination of violence against Indigenous women is a dominant feature of what we need to do to ensure that our generations uh, that follow us uh, become healthier. So what would you say is, is the proper way, if I can use that term, for non-Indigenous people to acknowledge the ongoing racism, the ongoing oppression, 
and to how do we make a contribution that just doesn't assuage our guilt but actually makes a difference in a way i kind of understand the the blindness bubble that canada has created around people so that you don't see it you don't hear about it nobody talks about it it's not comfortable conversation uh mps don't want to talk about it. mlas don't want to talk about it. our teachers don't want to talk about it so that's about our complicity we have to embrace courage embrace it to the gut and when you hear something in your own circles on sunday and your grandpa says something or your uncle says something about indigenous women that's not correct have the courage to ask for clarification or to make demand that in the circle that you live in it is free of racism free of oppression for other peoples and embraces people and demand from your mps your mlas and your bosses and your work environments so and people need to use that kind of energy and it's hard to muster it up because man if i was a descendant of a european who came here in 1949 and i was a physician why the hell would i want to look at the truth of the land when i'm living high off the hog you know uh, relatively compared to me coming from a an oppressive society like france or england where i was my ancestors were treated poorly so people have to muster up something called empathy compassion and the true source of who they are as a human being devoid of color okay to really say we want equity and i'm going to be a part of that and to teach our kids and our grandkids to act in that manner every day and practice it and that's kind of where we're at right now uh peter uh besides looking at the more um legal uh, ramifications of of ongoing uh racism is actually hate crimes uh, against indigenous people and that's uh, and particularly uh academically uh as well as in a uh, a process way that uh I'm going uh to influence uh, Manitoba. I love the comment um I think maybe by one of your colleagues that we don't need any more allies we need accomplices. Very much. We really do and we need people to step forward and tell the truth. See our truth that is truth. And remember Peter never use the word perspective perspective is a tool of white supremacy there's only real things that go on and so we can't interrogate perspectives otherwise we stay in a in a zone of white supremacy and the other thing peter if you ever hear anybody talk about community people where i come from as vulnerable close them down vulnerability is another tool of white supremacy there's nobody vulnerable there are targeted groups in canada uh, that feel violence including women in general they're targeted they're not vulnerable okay thank you so much thank you too so much that's physician dr barry lavely in winnipeg i know this has been a lot to digest and may have triggered some very uncomfortable memories for you it's an understatement to say that it's certainly not easy dealing with all of this but surely the first step has to be to say it out loud maybe we can hang on to the hope in our hearts that we all know this persistent racism that has stolen indigenous health is unacceptable period to borrow the words that ted sorensen wrote for john kennedy's landmark speech on civil rights in 1963 this issue of treating each other with respect equality and fairness is 
as old as the scriptures and as clear, in our case, as the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples from the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In his role at the University of Alberta, Elder Rick Lightning has said that Indigenous students beat the odds of suicide, alcoholism, and more. He said it's like when turtles are born and race to the ocean with predators around, and only a few make it. Those students on campus, Rick said, are like the turtles that made it through. Just imagine how many more would make it through, and in good health, if we could only summon the will and the courage to confront the ugly predator of racism in Canada. I'm Peter Downey. Thanks for listening. Now, uh, Rick, Dr. Lavalie and Peter, for your insightful wisdom on stolen health. At one time, we were a strong, healthy people. We ate organic food from the land, used medicines that grew on the land. We looked at our wellness as a balance of mind, body, spirit, and emotions. When our lands diminished or were taken away, we were displaced. We lost our ability to feed ourselves with good food and treat our bodies with good medicine. Chemicals in our food have probably caused many of the illnesses prevalent in our indigenous communities. The trauma experienced by indigenous people has greatly affected our spiritual and emotional health. And of course, without good healthy food, our minds become stifled. I've been in hospital several times, and my last experience was not good. I laid in misery in the emergency room for many hours, and because of my condition, I don't really know if I really heard. Look at her. What are we supposed to do with her? But that sticks in my mind. In one visit, I was on dialysis for a short time, and even though they said I would have to have dialysis for the rest of my life, my kidneys miraculously recovered. I believe my spiritual connections had much to do with that recovery. Well, maybe it's time for us to reclaim our indigenous foods. Eat the moose, the deer, elk, the buffalo, or bison the corn, beans, squash, and other good foods of the land. Maybe it's time to reclaim our medicines. My grandfather was a traditional healer of both spirit and body. He left this world without passing on that knowledge. I remember a great auntie telling us, in these woods there are plants and roots to cure every illness. But sadly, our lands are not the same as they once were. Is it too late? Come visit. Onah.